Everybody, welcome to the Five Fossil Podcast. We're talking about being an entrepreneur and multiple ways to make money for your family. I'm your host, Priest Gordon. I'm a retired engineer and full-time day trader. I have a company called Linwood Holdings. We invest in real estate in Texas and in Colorado. Today's guest is going to be a special one. He's known around the country as AAA. This is Adam Adams. He um, started a company called Blue Spruce Holdings. They buy multiple multifamilies around the country and interested in learning how to do his business. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. Doing Thanks good. for having me. Of course, of course. So tell everybody about yourself. Sure. Um, as far as real estate, I really got started in 2005, which is a long time for most people my age. I was in college, and uh, my dad has always been in real estate. So I grew up it being a pretty normal thing to to think when I get a little bit older, I'll own real estate. But my dad actually gifted me uh, a piece of land. Nice. So in 2005, I owned my first piece of America, sold it for... <laughs> Uh, a, a lot more than I paid for it. I had to put like a hundred bucks into it. So I sold it for a lot more than that. And then uh, I decided I really like this thing. My dad's really taught me what I ought to do. And so I ended up buying my first rental about a year later. So nice. um, that's how I got involved in real estate. The first rental, by the way, was a, a, a multifamily little house hack. And for the most part, out of everything that I've ever purchased, besides maybe a couple of flips and a couple of single-family rentals, it's all been apartments. The biggest one was 423 units. Oh, wow, wow, wow. That's cool stuff. So what does your dad invest in? Did the land or just single families or how to go? He does a little bit of all of it. So my dad, actually my stepdad, he, um, growing up with him, he always bought on the tax deed auctions every single October in Utah. And he also tried actually sending direct mail to the people that were going to go to foreclosure. So he, for the most part, that ends up being land. And he usually spends about $100 for a quit claim deed to get it from their name into his name. And then he says, I'll take care of you know, the rest, I'll, I'll take care of whatever is owed and you just get rid of it. And I give you a hundred bucks to go to the bank and do that. Mm-hmm. Most people that reply say yes. Uh, but a lot of people don't reply. So, so he has cabin lots and just random pieces of land all over. And the main things that he looks at is, is multifamily. And he also has self storage. Mm-hmm. So when I was, much younger, I would snowplow our storage <laughs> units, um, and I would collect rent and work on some of the units. So it was kind of always something that we did, but he has a, kind of an eclectic uh, amount of different types of real estate that he's always been interested in. Nice, nice, nice. Now, that, uh, that storage unit stuff is unique. Yeah. So I just started looking into it maybe like a couple months ago, and I was like, that's a different way to do the multifamily type of properties and kind of going from there. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, it's really the cap rates, at least back then, I don't know what they are now because yeah. they're pretty well in demand, and he's mm-hmm. had those for years and years. But the cap rates were like you spend maybe $100,000 to build somewhere around 50 units, mm-hmm. and – each and every one of them is making a hundred bucks. And so that cap rate ends up being like 18%. (laughs) And I think he paid those off in 
five or seven years just because he was, he's like, all right, we'll just pay it off as fast as we can mm-hmm. and have no mortgage. Not that I say you should have no mortgage, but my stepdad, is, he's pretty uh, conservative, and that's just the way that he wanted to invest. Mm-hmm. And that whole concept of getting something, letting it pay itself off real quick, and then it's being mortgage-free, that's the idea I've been playing with on some of the, the ideas I have later on going on. But uh, it's different when you really think about it because you could do, let's say, five years, five, six years, and just put all the capital back into it, then be free and clear. Now you got some equity to play with for more players and kind of going from there, but it's different how people think about that. Yeah. Yep, yep. All right, so looking at that, so how did you get started with Blue Spruce? So Blue Spruce is a, a company that originally we – did creative real estate to help people out of a situation. Mm. And honestly, the the time that we were starting that company was like 2015 or 16. And at the time, and even today, there's not a whole bunch of people that need that creative real estate. So we were trying to change the world and help people. Yeah. And, and we found that it was a, a ton of work. We helped a lot of people. And I have a pretty soft heart, and I try in everything that I do to have as much integrity as possible. Yeah. And one of the things that I always tried to do is help somebody even if I didn't get paid. Mm-hmm. So I did that with a whole bunch of people, did help them with like um, – it's called a – oh, I haven't even done it for so long. I'm forgetting the name of it. It's a loan modification. Mm-hmm. So I'd support them and a lot of times get a power of attorney – and call the bank on their behalf and just get the loan that they had mm-hmm. modified either with smaller payments or a certain amount that they owed the bank yeah. to get waived and or to drop the interest rate. So mm-hmm. I would just negotiate on their behalf. And by the way, you can't get paid, yeah. at least in Colorado. If you help somebody with a loan mod, you cannot be compensated. Mm-hmm. But that tended to be the easiest not the easiest, that tended to be the best way on their behalf to actually help them. Of course, I always wanted to do lease options subject to wraparound mortgage. I always wanted to figure out a way for all of us, but I helped a ton of people just get out, get their loans modified so they could stay. Mm -hmm. And it ended up being cost prohibitive to support people doing that. So we actually... Uh, decided to do more rentals in 2016. In January is when we started. That was Blue Spruce Creative Home Solutions. Mm-hmm. Now this one's Blue Spruce Holdings. So we bought our first uh, multifamily unit. It was a fiveplex commercial real estate deal um, in January of 16. And then we started raising equity mm-hmm. for deals. And it's called syndication. So yeah. we started like raising other people's money. And closing on, we did a 16 unit about a year later. We did another, uh, an 83 unit that literally closed uh, <laughs> two weeks after the 16. So that's kind of how we started. And we got up to where the company managed four apartment buildings and uh, a total of 380 ish units, 385. I'd have to put it all together. And then me as a passive investor, I also invested in some other people's deals. Once I started, I, I, I was teaching people how to buy money without, buy uh, property without money. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden I got money and I tried 
spending, uh, you know, putting that passively in other people's deals. And I was like, this is where, this yeah. is the real way to do it. I want to do it only this way for now on. So, yeah, that's the cool stuff. You sit back as a lender, you become the bank. If you sit back and you don't do any work, you just lending the money out there, you're getting your terms back and forth and going from there. Yeah. So, um, so you said out of them, almost the 400 you guys managed, did you own those or y'all just managing them? Yeah. Oh, we own, we own and operate. So we are, we're the property manager, we're the owners, we're the asset manager, we're the kind of the buck stops here. So we, we owned four different properties, 1683, six, uh, 63, and then the other one's like 120 units. Yeah, yeah. Now explain to me how you set up the management of an apartment complex. <sighs> that is a good question. So to set up the management, you want to think of it as really two parts. One of them is the asset manager, mm -hmm. and the other one is the property manager. And in general, for your listener, I want them to think, how can I only be the asset manager and not be the property manager? Because the property management is a full-time job and you're not compensated very well for it. Yeah. So um, we, we first set up asset management. A lot of the properties that I mentioned to you are, are so small that they're prohibitive to have mm -hmm. a, a property manager because you really start getting at scale when you pass 70 or 100 units. Okay. And when you have 200 or more, it's way easier. You're, it, most people listening probably expect, like when I own a rental, I'm probably going to pay like 10% of the income because that's fairly normal. You get 500 in income, 50 of it goes to the property manager. Uh, you get 2,000 in income, 200 goes to the property manager. But as soon as you own these larger buildings, a very small amount goes to the property manager. So instead of 10%, you might be at three or 4% instead. Nice. Um, so just think of it as two things though. One is the asset management, which basically in a way you're kind of the micromanager of the property manager, <laughs> right? You're just watching them. You're, you have some KPIs that you follow and track. You make sure, you know, how, what is my, what's my, uh, the amount of people that live there, like the vacancy rate or the occupancy rate, where is that? Where is it trending? Where is it going? When do my leases expire? Are they going to all expire in June and, <laughs> and we're going to have a terrible time? So you're looking at those things just kind of off, uh, on to, on, you know, off to the side and just paying attention and staying ahead. Uh, the property manager is the one that actually cleans the units, turns the units, uh, hires the con contractors for the units or for the roof or whatever. The property manager is the one that does evictions. Uh, so, so those are the two kind of roles. For us, we became the property manager. So the way that that looked is we hired somebody. Most of the, all of these are in a different state. Okay. Um, so we would hire somebody that was a direct employee of Blue Spruce. And then they would do all of that work and we would pay them either a salary or a salary plus bonuses. Nice. For example, that saves you a bit of money. Usually that saves you a bit of money from the 10% mm -hmm. that you'd have to pay. So now you're paying, for example, free rent maybe for one person. And then you'll also pay maybe like 15 or $20 an hour for how often they work. And at a smaller unit, like a 16, they're not going to, they're not even going to work 
close to full time. Yeah. And on top of that, you might, it just depends on your negotiation skills. You may or may not also give them a little bonus when they turn a unit. Um, so sometimes that's a, a half a month's rent or a full month's rent mm-hmm. that just goes to that person. So it just kind of depends on how you, how you all set it up. And for us, another you know insight of what we have been doing is there's a business partner who's an asset manager, and then they have a part-time bookkeeper and a part-time assistant uh, asset manager and a virtual assistant. Mm. And that's been able to help our, my, my business partner to be able to manage everything and for a lower amount of cost than you might have to pay. Um, but of course, it's a lot more work oh, yeah. too oh, yeah. when, you, when you're managing it yourself. So going back to something I mentioned before, if you're listening and you're thinking about going into syndication or buying uh, medium-sized or larger apartments, do your absolute best to just go ahead and hire a company who is trained in evictions, is trained in lease-ups, is trained in this business so that you don't have to figure it out because it's expensive sometimes mm-hmm. to figure it all out alone. Yeah, that makes sense. Hire somebody who really does this. That way you can focus on kind of going through the numbers, kind of going from there. Now, so when you think about it, so how would you analyze the difference between analyzing a single-family home versus an apartment complex? Both ways, both things that I would analyze, I would want to figure out how much money I'm going to be making. It's a lot more challenging to figure that number out when it's a single family. Most people do this. Most people say the mortgage is, you know, PITI, principal, interest, taxes, and insurance combined. The, that mortgage, all of those expenses, let's just say is $1,000 a month. And I'm making 1300 a month. So most people that are trying to analyze a deal like this, they say to themselves, I have $300 passive cash flow. The truth of the matter is that you don't. You're actually losing money. Uh, if you have $300 net after just PITI, then you're forgetting about every time you have a unit turn and you have to paint the whole place. Yep. Every time you, you have to do a roof and it costs $12,000, yep. every time that you need to do your, um, your, your, your plumbing, like yep. your, the main line, clean that out, snake that yep. out, or replace it, you're talking thousands of dollars. Yep. If the drainage is off, you're talking thousands of dollars. If you need a landscaping, you're talking tens or hundreds yep. of thousands of dollars. So uh, most people think, oh, I'm, I'm making 300 a month, but the way that I analyze a, a a uh, single family is automatically whatever amount of money that you come in. I want to say that you have a 50% expense ratio mm. and that does not include PITI. That does not include the mortgage. So basically if I'm making 1300, I'm going to say that at least $650 every month goes to the property to make the property work so that I I can replace the roof at some point, replace the stove or the refrigerator or turn a unit. And then if I'm also paying a thousand dollars a month for my mortgage and taxes and insurance, then unfortunately I'm underwater Mm -hmm. by $300. So that's a 16.50. So I'm really losing like $350 every single month. 
on that property. And I actually analyze personally, I analyze multifamily about the same way. Now, we've looked at an underwritten, that just means to analyze mm-hmm. lots of apartments over the past several years. And we have noticed that if they're being honest and if we're looking at the right numbers, there is uh, an expense ratio that tends to be anywhere from about 45% to about 55%. Mm. So if you want to do a quick analysis, you'll just uh, assume 50% of all of the gross income automatically goes to these expenses. And then you got to think about how much the mortgage is. And then compare that to what you're totally making. Yeah. And they use something called a cap rate. So we're recording this in the Denver neighborhood. And most of the houses have about uh, a max of a 1% cap rate. That means most of these houses, if they're making money at all, <laughs> then it's an absolute max of 1% uh, of what you've actually put into of the gross, mm-hmm. of the purchase price. Now, if we're looking instead at these apartments, most of those are going for three, four, five, six or more percent cap rate. So there's a few other things that go into the analysis. So you're already seeing, all right, if I buy larger apartments, I'm doing much better than if I'm buying houses. So there's one thing holding a lot of people back, but it's way more money. Don't worry, you can raise the money and it can be safer and protect you and your investors to do it. But with this analysis, it's not just the numbers. We will also look at three other things. One of them is the team that's operating the deal. Okay. You want to be able to make sure that the that either the property management company and or the asset manager has done a deal just like this mm. in that same neighborhood and successfully. Not just that they own one now. So that's one piece of the underwriting that's outside of just the numbers. Another one is the market itself. Because some markets have a headwind and others have a tailwind. Mm. And many people listening might say to themselves, hey, if I go in Cleveland, Ohio, if I go in, um, name a, a, a smaller market that where there hasn't been a lot of increase in the home value or even the rents, they're 500 today per unit and they were 500 per unit 10, 12, 15, 20 years ago, that hasn't really increased. And so a lot of people say, Adam, you might be right about that Denver thing being a 1% cap rate, but if I go to Youngstown, Ohio, Cleveland, Ohio, Mm -hmm. Detroit, Michigan, if I go to uh, Mississippi, if I go to St. Louis, then my cap rate goes up. I disagree. I will just share real (laughs) quick that there is a minimum of what a, what a property is going to cost you. For example, regardless of how there, – there's so many, like, nuances. And if I knew you were going to ask this yeah. question, though, I would yeah. have written I would have written everything down. But the point is, in those markets, if the rent is 350 a month or 400 a month, you're already going to have many, many, many months of loss yep. just by doing one thing, which is – another reason why it's better to go bigger and another reason why it might be better to go to Denver, even though you might at max have a one cap, but you're seeing this other property in, in Detroit that you say it's a, it's a 15 cap. Mm 
Mm. It's way better, Adam. <laughs> I can I can pay for the whole house with two years. Uh, so anyway, I just want to at least disagree and say if, if you're looking at smaller markets, be really, really, really careful. Um, I have seen a piece of analysis from somebody that I really respect that says that the rent, the best rent, if you want to hit your numbers, it should be a minimum of 750 per unit mm. up to around 1300 If it's in this little sweet spot, you're more likely, the higher probability to actually hit the numbers that you want yeah. than if you're investing in things that are like 2000 3000 a month or even 400 500 600 a month. So we, the next thing after looking at the numbers and then looking at the team, you just want to look and make sure that you're in a market that's going to be able to carry you through and has a tailwind yeah. to make you go even faster than you're really going. And the last thing to look at is just the actual property. Is it is it in really good shape? Is it Does it need work? And if it needs work, you want to just make sure you're putting on aside enough money for that. Yeah. Don't, don't just think to yourself, oh, I'm buying this 200 unit. Uh, Adam said that it's a $12,000 roof in Denver for a single family. So I'm going to just use this other number. Maybe it's like 100,000 because it's only one roof. I'm X... It might actually be $2 million for that roof. So you want to be able to look at the property, look at the condition, analyze it, walk every single unit. doesn't matter if there's 200 units, 50 units. You're going to physically be in every single unit. So those are the four main things that I would look at if I was analyzing a single family or a multifamily. Yeah. I mean, that multifamily stuff is really strong. I know in my neighborhood at home, we went home looking at properties and it's an apartment complex right at the entrance of the neighborhood that's been, um, I mean, mismanaged for years, easily 20 years mismanaged. And now someone else has bought it, and you can see um, they're doing new windows, new siding. You can see the new HVAC units on top of it. I was like, somebody bought it, and somebody's going to do it right. And they got the new fencing up, so it's going to be gated entry into it. So it just, yeah. it's pretty cool to see somebody come in. And then we start studying and understanding okay, they're going to raise the rents and get this thing running the way it should be running. Because, I mean, it was, um, this one was 160 units. And I guarantee half of them were vacant. So you sit back and look at the property, and every time I'm like, man, somebody needs to get this and go from there, and now somebody's really doing that. That's cool. Yep, yep. So looking at that, so what kind of uh, – what's the number of units you guys prefer? That is a super good question, and my answer shouldn't be your listener's answer, but we prefer something just smaller than 70 only because we've – been self-managing for some time and it's our direction is to just stay doing our lane there's a bit less competition when you're doing these under 70 unit apartments uh huge drawbacks but we feel since we've been i've been personally managing apartments since 2007 uh and my my business partners and i we own hundreds of units currently it's become the way that we've decided to make our niche. If you have somebody who's, who's listening and is like, Oh, that sounds brilliant. I should also do that. Just be super careful. If you are going to be managing it yourself, there's a lot to learn. There's a lot of mistakes. A lot of them are expensive. (laughs) So my suggestion to most people is to start out even with the absolute first one that you ever purchase, making sure that it's well over a hundred units that's the very first thing, but to partner with people that have been there and done that before. I mentioned earlier when we analyze a deal, 
one of the strange things that we analyze is who's going to be managing this? Mm -hmm. Have they done it before? If you're buying a hundred unit, I want you to do that as well. I want you to buy something where you know that the your co-partners, your co-general partners have already done this in this neighborhood. They've done a great job and you're becoming part of the team to learn and grow with that protection. I do not recommend any size of, of property just going out on your own, winging it, especially if you're raising other people's money to buy that property. Yeah, yeah. Now, thinking about that, now, we're talking about funding these deals. How do you go about funding a deal like this? The best, there's there's two parts of the funding, really. Oh, maybe there's three. The first stuff is the the upfront costs. One of those happens to be the earnest money deposit. Mm-hmm. So, a lot of people who have bought houses, they might be used to putting $100, $1,000, or maybe five or 10000 When we do an earnest money deposit for a property that it, in and of itself, it costs $20 million, we're generally going to put at least 1% down. So that's a $200,000 automatic <laughs> earnest money. So that's part of the funding. The second part of the funding, well, that goes along with that is the other hard costs. For example, you have to have a inspector, you have to have roofers, plumbers, you have to have people looking at it. You have to have, you generally will spend money with your property management company ahead of time just to be able to do all of this work with you. So you've got these upfront costs. That's the first part. The second part is the equity of the deal. And the last part is the debt of the deal. Generally speaking, when you first are looking at a property, before you even put in an offer, we call that a LOI or a letter of intent. Before we even send an offer in on a larger apartment building, we've already spoken with our our debt lender. Mm-hmm. So this is companies like that have CMBS loans. Uh, they have. Uh, HUD loans, they have uh, Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac loans. They're big, huge companies that lend millions of dollars anywhere from about 65% of the purchase price up to about 85% of the purchase price. Uh, A normal is about 75% that they will lend against a property. So you want to be in communication with them ahead of time, making sure that they, that they believe in you, that they know that you've done one of these before, that they will be able to lend at that number because sub-market, just small changes in a sub-market, even if you're just across a bridge or across the train tracks, it could be completely different from lending you 85% to 65% just because you're on the other side of the freeway. Mm. Um, so that's part of the debt. You need to qualify for that, and the main considerations that the lender, the debt lender, will be looking at is the income of the property. So they do a couple of things. They look at the cap rate. They look at the income, the expenses, and they'll make sure that the there's a DSCR, a debt service coverage ratio. Write it down if you've never heard of it, but just write DSCR. Some people call it DSR or DSC. Uh, debt service coverage ratio. All that means is they will underwrite the deal that it should have at least 120% of what it costs to make the mortgage payment. So Mm. if your mortgage payment is 100,000 
every single month, you have to have an NOI, the net operating income after all of those expenses, including roof and everything yeah. else, you have to have an NOI of 120%, so $120,000 a month. And as long as it has that, they're generally pretty happy. They also look to make sure that you're, you're, you have the net worth and liquidity. So that's what the debt lender is looking for. And if you don't have net worth or if you don't have enough liquidity, you can always partner with other people that add to the net worth or add to the liquidity. And the last piece is the equity. This is what generally is your down payment. So if they give you 75%, you'll need to cover the other 25% plus expenses, capital Mm -hmm. expenditures and other things like that. So you're going to need to have a little bit of money sitting in the bank just for random expenses so that the debt lender feels good. And you have if you're going to be replacing something in the next few years, you want to also have that set aside. So most people who are doing these syndications, if they get a 75% down payment, they'll raise that 25% completely from lots of passive investors, maybe at 50,000 per person, something like that. And they'll additionally have to raise another 10-ish percent, 15-ish percent, Mm -hmm. so that they can do what your friend did or the person that you Mm -hmm. said you were driving by your neighborhood and they put those fences up Mm -hmm. and they were gutting it out and fixing things up, that costs a lot of money. So you want to raise that as well. So that's how you fund it. Uh, And just a couple things that might be helpful to some people. There are, there's the Securities and Exchange Commission, Mm -hmm. SEC, they have some rules (laughs) of how you can raise this money, who you can raise it for, Mm -hmm. from how much you can raise per person, if it can be from their IRA, if they need experience, so these are some small nuances that you want to speak with an attorney about yeah. because some people say, I can raise this much or I can raise this much or I can raise this much, but only from accredited or non-accredited. Mm-hmm. So to answer those questions, you want to start off by having an SEC, Securities um, and Exchange mm-hmm. uh, attorney, on your side as a partner, as a teammate, and they're going to make sure that you're not putting it on social media if you're not allowed to put it on social media. Or you're, they'll make sure that you don't speak a, about raising money at a meetup if mm-hmm. that type of money raise doesn't allow you to speak at a meetup and let people know. A lot of people are breaking those rules. Um, so definitely speak to a securities uh, attorney, and they will be able to help you know how to raise and where to raise. And in some cases they will know a couple of people that might want to invest. In fact, I know three or four different securities attorneys that have invested in multiple of their uh, people's, their uh, clients' syndications. They're like, oh, yeah, I want to be part of this. I'll put 50 or 100 grand Mm -hmm. into that one. And so they're kind of diversified as well. So You think about that with those particular laws and things, you want to make sure you're really playing between the rules and kind of do what you need to be doing with that and kind of going from there. Now, my buddy was talking about bringing funds in from Australia, and I said the same thing. I said, we got to make sure we got a good lawyer in place and understand all the rules and regulations, bringing in money from offshore and then using it for investments in the United States and kind of going from there. So it's different. And, you sh- and it's good to note that you, you got to have that securities uh, uh, attorney in your pocket with mm-hmm. you. They will know or they can look it up how to raise from China, how to raise from Canada, how to raise from Australia, etc. 
they're going to know the nuances. What in many cases, like if you're raising money from uh, uh, Canada, instead of doing what most people do, which is an LLC, when they create these businesses, when they buy the properties, they'll have an LLC. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're raising from Canada, they they're going to be taxed doubly if they if you actually um, call it an LLC. So they have to do a, a slightly different type of entity that will own the property so that the Canadians that are investing with you, and we know this the hard way because we ended up having to do that on one of our deals. Um, but yeah, talk to your uh, SEC attorney. They will allow help you to be able to know which countries you are allowed to, which ones you can't, how to do it, how to, how to um, file the money, the income for those people. So there's a lot of interesting things. Yeah, they keep you out of jail. Yes. <laughs> so think about that. So let's say if you are analyzing these properties and you sit back and going to make the deal going from there, um, what type of returns are you looking at trying to offer these guys? They're really just based on the rents from the deals and the areas and everything else. Yeah, what's interesting is in a deal that has, let's just say, a 5% cap rate, what that technically means is that the whole entire property is making like 5% of what their what the whole purchase price is annualized so you you spend let's just say one million dollars then you'll have something like 50 grand a year in uh actual earnings so when you're asking how much are your people going to get your passive investors the strange thing is they don't get five percent or a portion of five percent they get something higher and many people are like, well, how would they get more than the whole dang thing is making? And the answer is that maybe if you're putting down 20% and the 80% that the actual bank has, you only have put in 20%, for example. So if you buy a $10 million property and you put in $2 million, your returns are 5x that – Five percent. So you might actually be overall making twenty-five percent on your money. So what we've been trying to do is give our passive investors somewhere around seventeen to twenty percent annualized returns after we sell the property. Yeah. And our team takes the other one or two or three or four percent. So we're splitting that over and trying our best to give a passive investor somewhere in that seventeen plus annualized return. That's a nice return. <laughs> so think about that. So what mistakes do you see guys making when it comes into buying apartment complexes and multifamily? One big mistake that I see is people that are not focused. They're, they're looking everywhere. They're, they have no real, uh, what's the best? When you're focused, you have, you're an expert at something. Mm-hmm. When these other investors are just hungry for a deal, they're looking everywhere. They're not, they don't even know any one market, whether it has a headwind or a tailwind. They're just like, okay, I just want that one because I want my first deal. And they're really excited, Mm -hmm. but they don't know anything about it. And then when they buy their second one, they couldn't find another one in that same neighborhood. So they go into a totally different state and have to do the whole thing again. So that's one of the mistakes. The next mistake that I'll mention is all about raising money. Most people think of it backwards. 
they think of it the obvious way, which is not right. The obvious way is I need to find a deal. And then when I find a deal, I need to spend time doing my due diligence. And then if it all works out, I have to fund it. Mm-hmm. So they do the money last. And it becomes such a challenge for them because of a couple reasons. One of the reasons is because every passive investor that you talk to, you're freaking out. You're like, hey, I need your money or else I can't close. I'm going to lose my $200,000 of earnest money if you don't invest in this deal. You're basically going to a passive investor and being like, I'm handsome, marry me, please marry me, I need a wife. <laughs> and no past investor wants to be proposed to like that. Yeah. It, you need to date a little, you need to get to know each other a little. So you ought to be going the complete opposite direction. One of the absolute first things you ought to be doing is seeking the investment, letting yeah. people know that these are the types of deals that I'm going to be looking into these are the type of deals that my team's going to be purchasing in this place. If I find a deal that looks like this and you show them your fake deal, your pretend deal, your sample yeah. deal, you say, if I get a deal that looks like this, would you want to be a part of it? And if you are, how much would you want to be part of it for? Yeah. So you start getting pre-commitments mm-hmm. well before you ever look at a deal. And most people are afraid to actually to do that because they think – no one's going to no one's going to trust me no one's going to take me seriously i'm trying to raise money i don't even have a place to put it so they actually talk themselves out of it and even though you probably heard me say this you're probably thinking to yourself hmm no i'm just going to go ahead and get the deal first you're you're really shooting yourself in yeah. the foot it, yeah. you're making it difficult on you so those are two big mistakes not being focused and not raising the money first yep I can tell you definitely. So I went the same way. I went out and got the properties, got them all lined up. They're like, I can't get funding. And then you would tell them, you know what, just sit back and just work on getting your funding lined up ahead of time, talking to people, let them know what you're doing, going from there. And then all of a sudden people are like, oh, yeah, that's pretty cool. And then I can get down with that on their own time and on your own time. Instead of you sitting back, I got a deal, I got to close within 30 days. And you realize once you back off of that, the stress leaves and you're just operating. 100%. Yes. Yep, yep. So thinking about that, so looking at some stuff on here, so how would you evaluate the Denver market you're seeing versus other places in the country? I haven't been focused on Denver, which is strange. I mean, I have done a couple of flips here, uh, some condos, some houses in Westminster and other, uh, you know, Aurora, Arvada. We've, we've done a few things around here. But as far as buying larger apartments – We've been looking a lot at Texas. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of reasons why, uh, as well as uh, Missouri. There's a couple of markets that we feel are big enough in in Missouri and uh, Georgia. So there's a few markets. Now, what we're looking for is, uh, A, you want a good cost of living. Mm-hmm. In Denver, it's a little expensive yep. to live here compared to many places in the country. So we don't quite have the cost of living. Another thing that we look for is to make sure that the it's cheaper to rent than it is to buy. Mm-hmm. If it's cheaper to buy, someone's only going to come and rent from you for a minute, and then they're, they're going to be like, all right, cool, I, I have to get out of this because it's so expensive to rent. Yeah. I got to get my own place because it's cheaper. Um, so in Denver, last I checked, it was still actually cheaper to rent than to buy, mm-hmm. but there are other uh, markets as well that – that are much more affordable. 
compared to that. So they're, they're going to be able to stay with you a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. Um, so the main differentiator is cap rates. Yeah. And I don't want to scare anyone off because you could go either way. Some people are thinking we've got to have at least an eight cap or some of them say even higher than that. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to find that unless you're in a terrible market. Mm-hmm. And there's other people that say we want to really, really, really strong market. Mm. And when you go to these strong markets, for you might have a one cap, a two cap, yeah. like in New York City a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to buy a property, it would have maybe, maybe a 1% cap rate. And you're thinking, how do you make money there? Well, the strategy there is to improve and raise the rents because once you do, if you make just a small change on the increase in rents, you can sell it for millions more. So I want to just mention to your question, what's different about Denver from many other markets? Denver is a strong market. It has really aggressive uh, cap rates where where a lot of people want to buy here, so they're willing to pay more for the income. Mm -hmm. But some of these other markets, they have some markets – there, it's all the cash flow. Yeah. So we we personally, and this is just the way I feel, and I might be suggesting to most listeners, but I don't think it's right for everybody. We've chosen to pick places that are in between, say, Denver and, say, someplace in Mississippi that doesn't have any investors that are looking for that particular market. We want something in between where there's – uh, there's population growth, economic growth, there's job growth, job diversification, some of these factors, good schools, yeah. not maybe the top schools in the entire world, but really good schools. Mm-hmm. Not, not, not uh, they, they rate four and five and six. We want them to rate seven out of 10 at least. Mm-hmm. In Denver, there's a lot of 10 out of 10 schools. Yeah. So that's just kind of an idea of like what we look for. And what's a little bit different about the different markets, um, you can certainly go to a Denver. There is more competition. It's a little bit more challenging. It's a good old boys club. And mm-hmm. a, a lot of times, if you don't, if you don't already know somebody, you're never going to get a deal. So that could be a challenge. Um, so instead of going all the way to, to a, a market that just doesn't have any competition, we go somewhere in between. Yeah, yeah. I know that's a lot of time. That's why I do most of my investing in Texas where I'm from. So you really know the markets really well and kind of understand the nuances of that particular area looking at that. Yep, yep. So when you think about some of this stuff, so how would you how would you evaluate, let's say, let's say you come out and your investor tell you we have $100 million we have to invest with you. And that's a lot of money. Do you go out hunting for deals after that or you just kind of stay within your niche or you say, man, we got to really expand it. We got more money we can spend. Can let let me have you ask that one more time because I want to make sure that I'm answering it correctly. So if your investors give you more money than you have for deals, do you have the pressure to go out and really spend all that money, or do you only find what you can find within your niche and kind of stick with that? I think that I think it could go either way. To be completely honest, most of the time there is already more money than there is deals. That's okay. just the truth of the matter. You might not personally have already raised it, but there's trillions more dollars in money wanting a deal today than there is deals that could be found. Yeah. So many people are going to experience that. So the question is, 
do we do we go become reckless and just buy anything just so we can put that money to good use or do we stay in our little lane and i think that it just depends on your team yeah. you might be able to partner with certain people that that might be able to help put some of that money and you could do it safely but my my ultimately my advice is never become reckless never be like i have to spend this money as fast as possible because you're going to get fomo yeah 100 yeah. million dollars is coming at you you're going to be like what if i don't get him a deal i'm going to lose the investor i'm never going to have it again and so it's going to be scary yeah. don't go don't become reckless don't just put it anywhere i would say stay in your lane as much as possible but be open minded to maybe looking at one more market or one co-GP where you could basically put the deals that they're finding with the money that you've already found yeah. together in a safe place. Nice. Now, considering what you saw in 2008, how do you see in today's market versus then? <sighs> I wish that I had a crystal ball. In, during COVID, back in March or April of 2020, I felt like we were seeing 2008 again. And I could be wrong on what I'm about to say. The data that I've been looking at suggests that in late 2021, we have, quote, at least two years of up. Mm. So it, it's, it's scary because you can't really bank on that. You can't really just say automatically this is going to happen. A COVID could happen. Anything yeah. could happen. And the bottom could fall out. But the main metric that we see that says that we have strength for the next two hours is supply and demand. Mm -hmm. So days on market. Yeah. How many months of inventory or weeks of inventory are available? And in most markets right now, it suggests that we will be growing and prices will be going up for the next two years. So to answer your question, I don't know what's similar and what's not similar, except in 2008, they were lending 120, 100 plus percent of a purchase price, and they were doing it recklessly. If you had a heartbeat, you could get a loan. Nowadays, they have stronger underwriting. They don't want that to happen again. And having the bottom completely fall out is less probable but also the supply and demand, as we're looking at it the day we record, there's way more demand. Yeah. Mayors and governors are begging for more uh, apartment units, more affordable housing, mm -hmm. and we can't build fast enough. Yeah. So it's, it's a big challenge. It doesn't mean I know what's going to happen, but probabilities say we should be strong for a, a minimum of two years from now. Yeah, that affordable housing thing is kind of big because I know I do the you know, mobile home brokerage here in town. And I'll tell you that it's crazy how here in Denver, they're completely full. There's like just nowhere for buy mobile homes and it's lower price living. I mean, it's crazy. Then in Texas, the same thing, the actual governments are paying people extra money to sit back and, and develop this kind of housing going from there. So it's kind of cool how you look at that. Yeah. But yeah. All right. So let's switch a little bit. Let's talk about your meetup. Cool. Yeah. Um, so the, the meetup started in 2016. I was brand new to Denver. 
and I didn't know how to have a network, but someone told me that your network is your net worth. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I'm screwed. <laughs> I don't have any of this. I'm, I'm not going to be able to do anything. Uh, I got to know people. And what I started to do and tried to do, mostly because I had the imposter syndrome, I didn't want to start my own, but I knew that I wanted to meet people. So I have my kids and they're young. And so we're still doing homework every evening. We're, I'm still all of that. As I decided to go to these meetups, it was a challenge because yeah. every single meetup met on a Tuesday or Wednesday evening. Yeah, yeah. And it was just like, man, how am I supposed to do that with my kids, with all, all my other responsibilities? How can I uh, get them, get them ba- bathed, cook their food, do their yeah. homework all in time if I'm going to be gone for a couple of hours on Tuesday or Wednesday evening. So randomly, I just thought to myself, well, if I could be the leader of a meetup, I would get a couple of benefits. One of those obvious benefits at the time was people would look up to me because I, wherever, whichever meetup I go to, it's the person at the front that I want to do business with first that I want to ask the questions to first. So I said, I think I could grow my network faster if I was the person up front. So I decided I'm going to have a meetup group. Yeah. I'm going to have my own. And so one of my first steps, very critical if you'll start your own meetup as well. One of my first steps was doing my reconnaissance. I'm looking and seeing what's out there. And there's two ways to think of this. A, you could look at what's already being done. That's what people want. I should do that too. The other Uh, The opposite is nobody's doing this. Maybe it's the wrong thing. Maybe I shouldn't do that at all. But I went out on a limb and I said, I'm going to do opposite from anyone. So I started a meetup called Creative Real Estate Meetup. All of the other, uh, and by the way, it's a lunch club. Yeah. So I can get there during the day. And I really, every single thing that I did with that meetup group was different than any other possible meetup. One of them. I met every single week. So it was a weekly meetup instead of a monthly or quarterly meetup. Yeah. And I had a story for that. This, that's important, and I'll get back there. I had a story for why we met weekly. Okay. Once you do something different, you have to own it and, and know exactly why yeah. you're doing it. Second thing, it was the only lunch club. Mm-hmm. I, again, I, I moved a story. I got a story ready for that too. Another one, it was the only one about creative real estate. And the fourth thing, that there's five. The fourth thing is that we were free compared to many others that cost around 200 a year. Mm. We were free. And the last one is we had nothing to sell. We never sold anything. All five of these things, we made sure that we constantly told people about. It's yeah. like brainwashing. It's, it's literally called influence, and the only way to make sure that your people know what's up is if you frequently say those things. Yeah. So I want to share a few of those with you because I think that it's supportive to anybody who's going to have their own meetup. So we talked about having the only lunch club. The way that we would explain that is, hey, there's a lot of groups that meet at night, and what I've noticed is many people that meet at night, they might have a full-time job, mm-hmm. and which is totally cool, and I want them to be able to, to go and, and become uh, uh, an actual investor. What I've noticed about this group 
is everybody's coming here for two hours in the middle of the day and some are taking an hour drive just to get here. It is a difficult thing. It is a challenge to be able to be here in the middle of the day. You basically take your whole day just to be here. So because of that, we tend to have a lot of people that are actually doing deals. Yeah. So that was the first thing. Uh, it was to explain why are we meeting at lunch. The second one, why are we free, for example? Hey, there's a lot of places that want your money. They, they say you can't do this. I don't care about that. I just want to do deals with you. Nice. So we, we are free. Okay. Uh, the next one, why do we meet weekly? Hey, there's a lot of places that meet monthly or quarterly. I have found that it takes six to 13 times. If you do, if you do the, some research, it takes between six and 13 times to start trusting somebody enough to actually do business with them. And I could totally have a, a meetup that met every single month. It'd be way easier. Yeah. The reason why we meet every single week is because our people that come here, they know that in about a month and a half, they've already seen each other six times. So you guys are more likely to do more deals than somebody who's meeting at those monthly meetups. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I say, that's why most of the people here, they've been coming here for months or for years. So anyway, you always got a story and I could, I could go into the other ones as well, but I want to like kind of pass pat quick that. Um, But yeah, anything that you do and you do differently, have a reason why, why, why don't you sell anything? Here's why. Why don't you X, Y, Z? Here's why. Or can I, if I can just flip it, everybody else, this wasn't us, but I could have said this just the same, just to open up the mind of your listener. All of these other places cost $200 a year. $200 a year is fairly easy to to pay. Mm -hmm. That's why we charge $2,000 a year because now we're only getting the more serious people. Like it doesn't matter if you're doing it for free or for 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 two thousand for ten times what others are charging. As long as you have the reason behind why you do it differently, that makes sense. You can flip it either way when you think about that. But I think the bigger thing you talk about as far as the networking and being able to reach out and you know I know two thousand people and we're all doing deals and somebody knows well if they have a deal they can call Adam and that's really a strong thing you have. Yeah, hundred percent. And just because I had the had the meetup, like this might be beneficial to uh, anyone listening who's thinking about having a meetup. It benefited me a, a crazy amount. Like, for example, the I my first four point two million dollars that I raised, I raised from that little lunch club. Mm. Um, any, I was the first one to get deals. All of the people in there, they had a deal that they needed to give. They came to me first because they were like, Adam's at the front of the room. I think he can close. I'm going to ask him first. And if he says no, then I've got all these other people. Um, and, and I will say one other thing. Because we were so good at being unique and owning it, that meetup group grew beyond what I ever could have expected. Yeah. Like yeah. I thought we might have six people that come every week. We ended up growing from six the first time to five the second time to five the next time to 10 to 12, it grew until less than a year from starting it. We were having hundred people or more every single week at lunch. Uh, so you, we would have some that were 40 or 60, but we'd have many that were a hundred up to 176 people 
at lunch in the middle of the day was like, because we added value we and we told everybody why we're doing it that way. So uh, another quick takeaway then, that just means consistency. Yep. When I first started that meetup, we had a big snowstorm. You can check this on your uh, Alcom, whatever they call it. Yeah. You go in and you look at the, the history, but this was the uh, second Thursday out of November of 2016. We had a giant snowstorm, and I almost canceled it. Yeah. But there was six people that ended up being there, and I think that they got this knowledge, maybe not even like – not even consciously, maybe subconsciously, but they knew that I was the type of person or maybe just the meetup was the type of meetup that does what it says it's going to do and is there yeah. no matter what. So, I mean, I, I partnered with three people from that first meetup group out of six, and I was one of the six. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting. Like, whatever, whatever you're going to do, I highly suggest that you keep going. And that's actually one of the things I've noticed about successful people. Mm-hmm. People, they might try something. They might dabble in something new like once or twice. And ah, nobody really likes this meetup. It didn't take off like Adams. It didn't take off like this other one. And they just quit a few feet from gold. Yeah, They yeah. literally just cut it out. They stop. And I've, I've seen people that, that have started like one asset class. Oh, I'm going to be a flicks and flipper. Man, this is so hard. I'm going to just wholesale. Man, they find out that it's so hard. I'm going to start doing this. And, and they never follow through with something. When I was in like grade school, uh, junior high school, I learned from uh, my, my junior high band director, we had to read this thing by Calvin Coolidge. It says, you know, that – persistence and determination are omnipotent. Like just you never quitting is the, is the one thing, not how smart you are, not how educated you are, not how talented you are, but the fact that you don't quit, that's the one thing that determines if you're going to be successful. I actually got it tattooed on my shoulder. Persistency and determination are omnipotent. So anyway, whatever you do, just keep doing it and a big failure for many people is trying it for a couple of months, realizing that it's hard because everything's hard. Mm-hmm. And then they completely quit and try something else that they find out is hard and they never succeed at anything. So yeah. you end up staying in a puppy phase and everything you're doing instead of just keeping on pushing through. And I think you talk about like, so a lot of people don't know the reason this podcast exists. I had the idea for the five hustle podcast and then you ran your meeting and I jumped in. I was like, yep, I'm going to do it and do it and then i sat back contacted the studio went from there so tell everybody about your podcasting yeah i my first podcast was called creative real estate podcast it ended up being you know one of the top podcasts and especially in the real estate space but we were a top one percent worldwide podcast and and it was because of persistence and and i'll tell you another one relentless um Un, unrelenting, like self-promotion. That's all like never quitting and telling everybody about it. And it ended up growing. Um, so I actually sold that podcast to Jason. He's freaking cool. He's such a good guy. And so he now owns the podcast and we, we, we took a little while where we were Mm co-partnering so so that I could kind of hand him off to his his listener. 
Um, but I started a, another podcast called literally The Podcast on Podcasting. So if anybody is listening and they're like, how do I podcast? The first six episodes of that new podcast is a course. I decided I don't need your email for you to take my course. I decided I don't want you to have to go to a website to take the course. I'm not going to pixel data you to take the course. It's free and it's easy. So you go podcast on podcasting, the podcast on podcasting. You'll see my face. It's a, it's a orange and gray logo. Okay. And you just listen to the first six episodes and it gives you everything you need to do to find listeners, to start a podcast, the equipment that you're going to need, how you, how you connect everything with the companies. It's a lot that would be overwhelming in general, but it can support you to be able to go to the next level. But We've had, it's a fairly new podcast. We have been getting around 30,000 downloads per month, which is really good for a new podcast. Yeah, really. And um, on top of that, we're at like 79 episodes as we record this. And so we've been, we've been putting out multiple episodes a week, mm. trying to just pour into people and give the value as much as we possibly can. Uh, if you felt like you got value out of, Whatever I was sharing about uh, real estate today, we do the same thing with podcasting. Right. And so it's the pop, we call it, podcast on podcasting. That's right. That's right. So it definitely motivated me. I mean, you sit back and I knew everything you were doing with real estate. And then I started checking out the podcast and you were like, hey, man, you had, you had that webinar about it. Like, guys, if you want to do a podcast, you can do it. And these are the steps you go by. I'm like, man, I'm going to do it. And then got to it and realized that this is it's fun. You can sit back and you can share information with people. Also, at the same time, you can learn information going back and forth, network with some really cool people, and just really kind of grow your network and just kind of go from there. So I really enjoy it. At the same time, I get to teach and learn at the same time. 100%. Yeah, cool stuff. And I'm glad I could even be a part of your journey. That's freaking cool. Thank yeah. you for telling me. Yep, yep. All right, so one last thing. <clears throat> Tell people, if you could go back 10 years and give yourself one piece of advice, what would you give yourself? Oh. <laughs> what what am I allowed to say on your podcast? You can say whatever you want to say. It's a grown man podcast. Jeez. <laughs> I guess I would say, honestly, I have had a lot of the things that I shared today about persistence. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I wasn't always there. Yeah. Like, yeah. Sure, I learned it in junior high. And yeah, it helped me in a few places of my life. But I never really processed it deeply enough, mm -hmm. which made me be somebody who's tried, even without my stepdad and his self-storage units, I've tried storage, assisted living, apartments, small apartments, large apartments, managing my own, hiring other people, doing uh, big flips, doing remote flips like in Florida and in Ohio, doing rentals all over the place. And what I would say is I made that mistake. I didn't have one sub-market, one uh, asset class. If I went back 10 years ago, I would slap myself up the upside of the head and, and be like, you seriously need to focus. I can dig that. Just pick one thing. And that's why I read the one thing book maybe about uh, three months ago. Cool. And I was like, you know what? Just get locked in on it and kind of go from there. So me as an engineer, I have that shiny thing syndrome all the time and get to digging into the numbers going back and forth. So 
that's good advice to sticking to that and kind of going from there. That's that. I love that book, by the way. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So tell everybody how to get in touch with you. Uh, if it's about a podcast, you can either go to the podcast on podcasting anywhere you listen to this show. Um, or go to growyourshow.com. That's our company name, growyourshow.com. Um, that's probably the best way they can find me on social if they wanted to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good stuff, good stuff. Oh, man, that was a great episode. Cool. Yes, Thank sir. you for having me. Of course, of course. Well, guys, that was the Five Fuzzle Podcast. Thank you so much for watching. I really hope you really enjoyed the show. I want you to do three things for me. I want you to like, I want you to follow, and I want you to share it with your friends. Also, if you're interested in doing deals in Texas, please hit me up. My name is Priest Gordon. You can find me at preach.gordon on Instagram or also at fivehustles.com. Thanks so much. Go hustle.